If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, as well as 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Let's ask God to uh, guide our time. Father God, uh, we thank you for what has been now six weeks of 10 that we'll spend on your fruit, the nine fruit of the Spirit. And Father, though we go out of order and today look at the last fruit, self-control, we pray, Lord, that you would work all nine in our lives. Father, perhaps we could only handle one or two at a time, but impress those upon us, empower us by your spirit to live out the fruit and to grow in a couple areas and then a couple more at another future time as you mold us into the image of your son. Speak to us, we ask, by your inspired and errant word. Allow me to say what is correct and for us to hear what is truth and to be changed by it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We've been doing the fruit now for six weeks, and so if you want to say it along with me, that's fine, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness. I've got it out of <laughs> goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Apart from such things, there is no law. I'm going back to elementary school. Man, that's the fourth time this morning, the only one I got it wrong. So it's not as bad as it sounds. Well, to illustrate the ninth one, self-control, I want to talk about Joe Lewis. Now, when we go to 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to be given the illustration of how to run the race that is set before us, and the illustration will be an athlete who runs or an athlete who boxes. So it seems appropriate that we would start with a boxing illustration. Some of you know Joe Lewis. You know that he took out Broderick in a technical knockout and he became the heavyweight champion of the world in 1937. He retained that crown until 1947, excuse me, 49, 12 years. He actually had 26 title defenses, which is the most of any weight class in history. He then retired and then came back out of retirement and he was beaten by a man named Charles in a 15-round unanimous decision. He is considered by many to be one of the four great boxers in history. Maybe you know Rocky Marciano or Muhammad Ali or Sugar Ray Robinson or Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis wasn't only a great boxer, he was a man of incredible self-control. I'd like to illustrate this from part of his life. It was during World War II. He served for the army. He served alongside a comedian named Harvey Stone. And in uniform, they would go to gig after gig where the boys were going to be sent out, whether to Europe or to the Pacific. 
and these gentlemen were putting their lives on the line or with the Red Cross, some of these gals were putting their lives on the line and before they would go out, there would be a comedy routine and an athlete would come and talk to them. Well, Joe Lewis and Harvey Stone were a combination. And in one particular gig, it was in New York City, Joe Lewis was driving them to the gig and he didn't brake quite fast enough and he just bumped a taxi cab in New York City. Now, I'm from New York, not New York City, but in New York City, they just don't have the greatest of manners. Just gonna say it. You know, it's my people, so I can say that. And this cabbie was irate. He was ticked off. Now, you got to know, there wasn't a scratch. There wasn't a bump. There wasn't a dent. There was no damage. But the cabbie put his cab in park, got out, came back, saw that Joe Lewis had a better tan than I do, and unleashed a torrent of racial slurs. And Joe Lewis rolled down his window. Now, if you had been Joe Lewis, what would you have done? <laughs> Joe Lewis said, I'm really sorry, sir. I, I can't believe I did that. If there's any damage, I'll pay. I am really sorry. To which the cabbie unleashed a second torrent of racial slurs and then said to Joe Lewis, who was in uniform, get out, let's fight like a man. He doesn't realize he's talking to the baddest man on the planet. He is talking to the undisputed heavyweight champion who has more title defenses in a row than anyone in history of any weight class. And he threatens Joe Lewis and tells him to get out. What would you have done? What about me? Joe again apologized. Ignored the racial slurs, which were gross. Did not get out of his car diffused the situation, never identified himself as the heavyweight champion of the world. And finally, the cabbie got back in his car and drove away. And Harvey Stone tells the story. And he says, Joe, what are you doing? Why didn't you take a swing at him, pancake him? You could have taken him out. He threatened you. He invited you. Nobody would have held it against you. Why didn't you do something? And Joe Lewis said, uh, Caruso, the Italian opera singer, if he had been in my shoes, would he have gotten out and sung at the man? In other words, should I get out and hit the man? No. Joe Lewis did the harder thing. How easy to identify who you are. How easy to get angry and defend yourself. How easy to take a swing at a man who deserves it. What is the harder thing? To exercise self-control. Joe Lewis was the man. He exercised self-control. In contrast to Joe Lewis, I wanna talk about Alexander III, Macedonian king, you perhaps know him better, as Alexander the Great. He conquered villages, he conquered countries, he conquered continents, but he didn't always conquer his emotions. And one well-told story is when his childhood friend, one of his generals, got inebriated and began to mock Alexander the Great in front of some of the other soldiers. 
And Alexander picked up a spear. And he intended just to scare his friend. But his aim was true. His thrust was strong. And he took the life of his childhood friend. He was so horrified, he wanted to take his own life. But his men wouldn't allow him. And for the next months on end, he identified himself as a murderer. He conquered villages. He conquered countries. He conquered continents. But he didn't conquer his own emotion. And it cost someone their life. Today we're going to talk about the ninth fruit. It's the fruit of self-control. It's the Greek word enkratia. It's actually rather rare in the New Testament, rather rare in the Bible. We really only have two prominent usages of it. We have it as the ninth fruit. And then Paul again uses it in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, to talk about how an athlete who's preparing for a contest prepares herself or himself mentally, physically, how they sleep, what they eat, what they do in the months preceding the athletic contest. Let me pick up, and I want to read from 1 Corinthians 9. We'll read verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's the word stephanon in the Greek text. There's two words for crowns. There's diadems. And if we get a diadem, then we cast it back at the Lord. But then there's this word stephanos. There are four different crowns. The stephanos that we are given, depending on how we live, that we retain as rewards for all of eternity. Now, some would say five. They would say 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the crown of joy is a fifth one. For reasons I don't really have time to explain today, I don't think that really pertains to today's text. I think there are four different crowns, self-control, then righteousness, the crown of life, and the crown of glory. Those four that you and I depending on how we live, can build up and the rewards given to us for all of eternity. Verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath to fawn on, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let me set the scene for us. Paul lived in Corinth for 18 months. We know he lived in Corinth from AD 49 to AD 51. And while he was in Corinth, he planted the church at Corinth. He lived with a husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla in their home. And he worked as a tent maker and then preached in the local synagogue. While he was there, he saw athletes. If you know anything about Corinth, it's on an isthmus, a jut of land between the Adriatic and the Aegean Sea. And there are two sets of athletic games that pertain to the time when Paul was there. There's the isthmus games, which actually is what he's referring to. And the isthmus games occur every two years. 
And if you want to be an athlete in the Isthmus Games, you will stand before an image of Poseidon, an idol. The Romans called him Neptune. And you will promise that for the next 10 months, you will not do your job. You will not care for your family. For the next 10 months, you will train. How much you sleep, what you eat, where you go. It will all be to master your body and master your mind so that you are fit for the Isthmus games that take place every two years. There's a second set of games. You're more familiar with it. It's the Olympic games. It's every four years. What you may not know is as a participant, you would stand before the false god of Zeus, which is Jupiter in the Roman pantheon, and you would make a pledge to Zeus to be the best athlete. So both sets began with idolatrous beginnings. I have no doubt that Paul hated the idolatrous beginnings. I have no doubt that he hated that athletes stood before idols and vowed to serve them. But God's spirit led him to write about the Isthmus Games because it was a cultural event that all of his readers would understand. And in this cultural event, there were a certain number of events. The text talks about running and it talks about boxing. There were actually three races. We know all about their events. They, they ran 192 meters, very similar to our 200 meter dash. They also ran a 384 meter race, which is kind of like our quarter mile. They ran a 5,000 meter race, which is a little less than three miles. So there were three races in the Isthmus Games. But the pinnacle of the Isthmus Games was not running, it was not jumping, it was boxing. That was the pinnacle event. Now, I think our minds can be clouded if we've seen boxing here in our era. Boxers put on gloves that actually are a little bit padded so that they limit the damage both to your hands and to who you're hitting. They did not. They actually put on a hard piece of leather around both of their hands and the leather actually increased the damage to those you're hitting as well as your own hands. In our boxing events, you have rounds. And after the first round, you have a corner man, he sits you down, he gives you some water and you have a cut man or woman and she's sewing things up and they're trying to get you ready for round two when the bell rings. They didn't have rounds. You just boxed until it ended. How did it end? When enough teeth were knocked out, enough noses were twisted, and eyes were shut, that one or the other boxer gave in. Now, we know a lot about the Isthmus Games. Rarely did a boxer give in. That means it only ended with one of two ways. One of them was knocked unconscious, or one of the boxers died. Suddenly making a vow for 300 days to prepare your body, <laughs> that doesn't mean much, does it? You've been preparing all of your life. If you're going into the boxing arena, the ring, and probably only one of you is coming out alive, you're going to buffet your body. You're going to control your mind. You're going to watch what you eat. You're going to watch how you sleep. 
you really are going to take this seriously because you might die. And notice the words Paul uses. He said, they do all of this for a perishable wreath. But we, Christ followers, are living our lives for an imperishable wreath. We know a lot about the perishable wreath. It was made of something like celery. It was actually made of a little bit of pine bough. And in their climate, high humidity and high heat, it might've lasted a day or at most a week. That's all you get. You put your life on the line. You've been preparing for all of your life. You've set 10 months aside, 300 days, where you haven't worked, you haven't cared for your family. You've buffeted your mind, you've buffeted your body. You've watched what you've eaten, you've watched what you've slept and you get a, a perishable wreath of some kind of pine bough. Best case scenario, it lasts a week, maybe even two. And it's gone. And Paul says, compare that to the wreath that God gives for those who exercise self-control. Let me read from the text, 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath to fawn on. So the first wreath, the first eternal reward, the first thing that God will give to those in this room who exercise self-control in your life, your life is modeled by self-control and you're living for the kingdom is he's going to give you the imperishable wreath of self-control for all of eternity. But it's not the only wreath mentioned. The second one is the crown of righteousness. Let me read from 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown, Stephanus of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, the day of judgment, but not only to me, but for all who long for his appearance. So some of you, who are living a righteous, a dikaiosune life, a life oriented by the word of God, in accordance with the word of God, God will say to you, you have received the crown of righteousness. And who gets that? Those who long for his appearance. Who are those who long for the appearance of Christ? They're the ones who are ready, right? And Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. I have entrusted you with little. Now I will entrust you with much. Come into my rest. And the crown of righteousness is given to some of you because you've lived for the Lord. We have the crown of self-control. We have the crown of righteousness. The third one, which is mentioned twice, is the crown of life. It's mentioned in James 1.12, as well as Revelation 2.10. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the Stephanon, the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the crown of those who are not necessarily politically correct. This is the crown of those who care far more about what God's word says than what society demands. This is the crown of those who will stand up and be persecuted who will live for the Lord regardless of what society demands. This is the crown mentioned 
to the church of Smyrna, we have the seven churches of Asia. Smyrna was heavily persecuted. Let me read Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the Stephana on the crown of life the crown of self-control, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and then the crown of glory. The crown of glory is for those individuals who lead the bride, the church well, and those who teach the inspired and errant word in a faithful manner. 1 Peter 5, 2-4. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfaded crown, Stephanon of glory. So this is for those of you who teach in women of real devotion or men's Bible studies or connection care group or help in one-way club and children's church and Sunday school or serve in young adults, or care for those in other Bible studies in our community or in the church or outside the church who faithfully teach, who faithfully lead four crowns for the faithful, those who have the crown of self-control, those who have the crown of righteousness, those who stand up and are counted when it costs. That's the crown of life, and then we have the crown of of glory. So as we think about this fruit, self-control, that's the first crown. It's not only a fruit, but it is a crown. It's a reward for those who live out the crown well. There are so many ways to apply self-control. We could go on forever, right? But I'm not Andrew, so I'm not going to. <laughs> I hope he's in the room. We tease him because he actually does preach longer than the rest of us. But it's not just all of these possibilities that we can do today. It's just three. So what is self-control? Well, the first is this. It's how we use our mouths. You remember what James says? James says of our mouths that they can light a fire. They can set a forest aflame. Our mouths are like the little rudder on a ship, a small rudder, and yet it steers and can do so much damage. And self-control matters with our mouths. Think what we can do with our mouths with relationships. A wife can wound a husband. A husband can wound a wife. Children can wound parents. Parents can wound children. Those within the church of Christ can wound one another. And we can wound those outside the church just forgetting that people are made in the Imago Dei and the image of God and treating people as enemies and opponents all the time. We can do all sorts of damage with our tongues. The fruit of self-control tells you and I how we ought to interact with our mouths. In this regard, I think of an event. It was a long time ago. It's happened many times. I could use the 
event with both genders. I've heard this story over and over again. So if you think I'm talking about you, I'm not. It's nobody in the room. But I remember a woman coming into my office. She said, every time my husband and I argue, he brings up my past. He brings up what I did even before I knew him. I've long since confessed. I've repented of that. He knew about that past before he married me. But he won't let it go. And to win an argument, to make sure I know I'm worthless, to make sure he and I know that he's superior and I'm inferior, he brings it up again and again and again. And I forgive him. You know, forgiveness is no longer holding somebody accountable, but forgiveness isn't forgetting. We forgive somebody and we hand it over to the Lord, but that wrong that we hear sometimes plays over and over and over and over. And the person who said it, oh, she or he has long forgotten they've said it. The person who heard it remembers and the wound remains and it continues to do damage. Let me tell you what the Lord says about when someone confesses, agrees with God about a sin, and then repents, turns from it. This is the Lord's words, Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, their sins, and I will remember their sins no more. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as I remove their sins from me. God says he's thrown them into the lake. He's thrown them into the deep. And you know what we do? We say, not so fast, God. And we get out our fishing pole and we go fishing and we bring it back up. And what God has forgiven, what God has removed from the east is from the west. In our arrogance, we bring back up to win an argument to make a point to wound another. And it's a self-control issue. I always think of these words. They were shared to me when I was younger. If you say you forgive somebody and you bring it up later on, you're a liar. It kind of comes back to me, doesn't it? Because if I've forgiven and the Lord's motto is the East is from the West then who am I to bring up what God says he will not? So the first area has to do with our mouths. I think of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 29. It says this. Let no corrupting talk. Growing up, my mom made me memorize this. It's actually the version I read it in. It says, let no unwholesome word. This is, this is my childhood. Every time my sister sinned, we all had to memorize a verse. <laughs> Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome words, no corrupting talk, that slander, that gossip, that's hatred, that spewing anger, That's cruelty. That's unwholesome talk. But instead, grace. Grace is not what a person deserves. Grace is what they don't deserve. And that's what ought to come out of our mouths. This is the fruit of self-control. The second area I'll just briefly touch on 
is self-control in the area of immorality. We are surrounded by an immoral word, world, but look at what God says, Ephesians 5, 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, depending on your background, when you hear the word saints, you think, okay, the person was beatified, which means that one miracle was attributed to them. And then they get a second miracle attributed to them. Miracles, by the way, come from God, not us. And then uh, after that second miracle and they died, then maybe they become a saint. But the Bible says that if you know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, if you've asked Christ to come into your heart to forgive you, me, of our sin and accept his death as a payment of our confessed and God's power repented of sin, we are saints. And it says let, let not even a hint of immorality be among the saints. So that tells us that we need to guard what we see, what we do, where we go, what we allow into our lives. We need to guard our lives because we don't want that hint of immorality. Immorality, by the way, is intimacy outside of a husband-wife-marriage relationship. Any intimacy prior to marriage or outside the marriage or any combination other than a husband or wife is immoral in the Bible. And God says among the saints... Those who profess Christ, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. This is a self-control issue. And by the way, it's the fruit of self-control. When I read the word self-control, I think, oh, it's all on me. And it becomes a white knuckle. I've got to do this on my own. But when I remember it's the fruit of the Spirit, I'm asking God's Spirit to work in my life to help me to turn from sin and towards righteousness. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your salvation. Jesus did that for us. But empowered by God's spirit, having accepted Christ, we work out the salvation that he gives us with fear and trembling. So self-control, it's our mouths. It's our morality. And it's certainly our idolatry. Idolatry is thinking that anything or any person is more important in our life than the Lord. God is a jealous God. He tells us that very clearly in the Ten Commandments. And when we covet, when we want something or someone that we don't have, or we want something beyond who God is, we violate the first, second, and tenth commandments. The first commandment is thou shalt have no other God beside thee. The second is thou shalt not commit idolatry. The, the tenth is thou shalt not cover thy neighbor and a whole bunch of other things. Colossians puts it this way. In Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. It's not always wrong to want something bigger, faster, shinier, better. But if I start to believe I'm an owner rather than a steward, or things or people, possessions, ideals, ideologies, jobs, if any of them become more important in my life, or even 
approximate the importance in my life than God, that is idolatry. And it's a self-control issue. Again, I want to remind myself that it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's God's Spirit working in me. And so we go through life with a number of SOS prayers. They might sound something like this. Lord, you know I have a sharp tongue, and I really want to win this argument. But Lord, help me not to utter an unwholesome word, but one with grace. I can't do this on my own. Would you help me? Or Lord, I didn't expect to see that on my computer screen. Empower me to change screens immediately. And empower me to think things that are about you, things that are lovely and good, rather than things that are sinful. Or Lord, I have this tendency to never be satisfied. I'm always wanting one more thing. Help me to be satisfied in you. And when you allow me something faster or bigger or shinier, let me see this as a gracious gift from you and allow me to steward well for your kingdom. And we go through life with these SOS prayers. Ancratia, self-control, is an athlete who buffets their body. They control their mind. They control their environment in such a way as to run in order to win the prize, to box as to get on the podium. And that's the analogy given to us on how you and I are to live the Christian walk. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the fruit of the Spirit, the ones I've had the privilege of preaching and the ones that some of my uh, co-workers are preaching. Father, uh, we know that probably none of us are capable of working on all nine at the same time. But bring a couple in front of us that we would work on. And then when we gain a little bit of growth, give us a couple more. We know it is a lifelong pursuit. We will never master even one. Not short of glory. But Father, grow your spirit-empowered fruit within us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.